Oh no, we've lost Andy. No. Come back, Andy, go, come go back. On. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You're sparkling officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrick. Plain, simple, Garrick. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland, Paul Spataro, and Dr. Bill Robinson. Bloody hell. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Listen to the Prophets. This week, we're going to take a little trip swinging out of the 24th century and back to the swinging days of Vegas in the mid-20th century, the early 1960s. And for our little trip, we're joined by our usual cast of characters, Ange, Big Ange Leyland. I think it's a little bit early to say this is going to be an exciting episode. Well, the doc. Hey, how's you doing? And we have a very special, one of our very special pallies and contributors to almost every single episode, Blaine Dowler. Hey, thanks for having me on again, guys. Seems like I'm not here. I think that's the problem with these podcasts. Too many people named Paulie. (laughs) So do we have any news? Yes, Blaine is here. That's well, nothing Star Trek related, but we did we did just find out that uh, that the Snyder Cut of Justice League is coming out. Uh, apparently, all the Warner Brothers execs were sitting at a table and realized their mothers were all named Martha, so they. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> Why did you say that name? Because Martha rhymes with money. Oh, sorry. You know, I I don't mean to cast aspersions or anything, but I could curse so little whether this comes out or not. I'd, you know, whatever. If you're looking forward to it, good on you. Justice League was utter shit. It can't be worse than that. I thought it, Justice League was mildly entertaining, but f- totally forgettable, if that's a uh, fair description of it. But I'm curious to see what the differences will be. I'm not curious enough that I would actually pay to get HBO Max, but if I have access to see it, I probably would watch it. If it was shown on traditional HBO, I think I'd watch it and see what the differences are and see if if I was more entertained by it. I, Like I said, I thought the first one was kind of just meh. Uh, I don't expect this to be particularly better, and it might not be particularly worse either. If I was Justice... Oh, if I was Justice League. If I, if I was Warner Brothers, I would just release the movie exactly the way it is, except leave in Henry Cavill's mustache. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and say it takes place in the mirror universe. There you go. Yeah. I don't know. I, I get the impression... Well, I, I believe I would enjoy a completely Joss Whedon version more than a completely Zack Snyder version, but I'd be interested in seeing if the, the style clash and the conflict that came out in that final edit goes away, and if we get a superior product just because it is one person's vision and not two people with different visions getting jammed together. 
So, yeah, I haven't really been a fan of Snyder's version of the universe. And the thing is, I like best about Justice League, the film, I suspect, were Joss Whedon moments. But I don't understand people dumping on the fans who do enjoy Snyder's version, who've been asking for this and are now finally getting it because... You know, the COVID pandemic has said, hey, it's hard to have new live action product. And all of a sudden, it's now considered cost effective to finish this when it wasn't cost effective before. Well, the, the thing about the people who are fans of the Snyder vision <clears throat> isn't so much that they're a fan of something that I'm not as big a fan of because I did not like Batman v Superman at, uh, really at all. Uh, it's their dismissive nature and once again it's like it's fanhood it's it's the way people get the dismissive nature of the people who don't like that and you know the the attitude of well if you didn't like it i guess you're not intelligent enough to have appreciated it i think i'm intelligent enough to to appreciate it i just didn't really care for it yeah and i think we should point out here when we're talking about it we're talking about some of the most vocal fans and certainly not all of the fans yeah, but I mean, that's the thing that turns fans yeah. against each other, the vocal ones. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you know, I mean, if, if you just if you prefer the Snyder vision and you want to see this version, more power to you. Just don't don't degrade the yeah. people who don't have that vision. That's that's been my issue with it. It's just been a lot of infighting and arguing, even though you've got what you want. We just say, ah, oh, brilliant, cheers, mate, and look forward to it. Because they've got yeah. to finish the special effects, so it's going to be a while. And I don't think they've even decided yet if they're going to release it as a full three and a half hour, four hour, whatever it is, or release it as a mini series. I've I've heard that they're leaning towards mini series, which I don't know if that's going to be true to the original vision either. Well, it was it didn't wasn't it originally two films? He, yeah, but they hadn't actually filmed the second. Right, so it so was going to be one, one longer, very long. So yeah. are we going to get to the delights of um, Lois Lane's death in this, or was that something that was coming up? I, I don't know where the lines are drawn. Uh, John M. Wilson would be a better person to ask. He's one, one of the reasons I wanted to put in that caveat. Uh, John M. Wilson is a really good guy. He's a prolific podcaster, and he is very much a fan of the, the Snyder vision, so he would be a better person to ask than I would. He is also one of the fans of the Snyder vision who's been extremely respectful of those who disagree. He, he is a model of how to do this. So... Yeah, he, he's not one of the fans that Paul was just complaining about. I would say. Yeah, no, I, I've heard I've heard John's take on it and how much he has enjoyed it, and I I've never I've never gotten that impression that he's looking down on people who don't like it. I think I, I think if anything from John, I've gotten more of an impression of he doesn't understand why people don't like it because he thinks so. Hard. But I don't think he is, you know, putting anybody down for having a different opinion. I'd like to see the the cut. Uh... I'm sure I'm not going to be thrilled with it, but curiosity, I'd like to see it. I'm not going to pay any extra for it. If it comes my way, I'll see it. Hmm. I'll probably watch it, because I do think the extended cut of Batman vs. Superman is better than the theatrical cut. Yes, 100%. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, did, did you ever hear the term low-lying fruit? Well, I, w- I wasn't, I wasn't going to go there. I was just going to leave it with, it is a better film doesn't mean that I liked that film any better. Yeah. It just that it is a better film. And it's part of the issues with the, the DC movies, even going back to Green Lantern, uh, which had all sorts of other issues, is that the Warner Brothers executives have said, this is going to be your runtime, and they will edit to that runtime, even if it makes for a lesser film. And, and Batman v Superman hit that. And, yeah. 
as a director, I'm sure you're aware of that going into it, and you have to make some choices to try and make the best film within the running time that they give you. And it's not as if Batman v Superman was told, okay, you got to make a 90-minute movie. He was given yeah. time. I mean, you know, ultimately, what what he it, it wasn't the vision he hoped for in the theatrical release, but he was given some parameters, and he didn't work within those parameters. That's true, although part of the issue is that the Warner Brothers people are now saying, well, we'll be open to it because Warner Brothers have seen, I suspect, anyway, is because they've seen how much money they can make with Blade Runner releasing multiple versions of the same film. So they're saying, well, you know, go ahead. We Yeah, we want to do a two-hour movie, but if you've got a good two-and-a-half-hour movie, we'll consider it, when really they're not. And what they'll do is do the two-hour theatrical and then release both on home video because they get more money from home video and double-dip the big fans who are going to buy both versions. I think there's also an aspect of this uh, that that their their business-making decisions are influenced by the fact of the quarantine that's going on as we record this, and hopefully is concluded by the time uh, (laughs) this this episode airs. But the fact that they're not producing new content right now, uh, I'm sure has them looking into the library and saying, you know, what do we have that exists that hasn't been put out there yet that we can actually make money off of? Yeah, because right now the only product that they can do are library or animation, really. Because a lot of CGI can now be done at home and not in the studio. So yeah, that's why I meant where now in the COVID pandemic, it's it's now considered economically feasible because now it's still a huge investment to make the Snyder Cut happen because he was nowhere close to finish. They still needed the visual effects. There were reshoots that were scheduled, which I they may or may not be happening. So it may not be completely true to his vision. But they are moving forward with it because, well, now they're lacking product. So this will have less competition when it comes out. And, you know, there'll be a a greater hunger for new product from the audience. So I think the profit margins just appear to widen out for them, which is good. Like I I said, I am I would prefer Whedon's version to Snyder's version. I I don't like how dark his Superman is. But I will still check this out, and those who enjoy it, I'm glad you're getting it. I've long maintained, with the exception of snuff films, no one is hurt by a film getting released. If it finds an audience, great. Whether you're part of that audience or not, it's a problem if every DC superhero movie or every Marvel superhero movie appeals to one single person. It's either a sign that that single person is not very discerning, given how many movies are coming out right now, or it's a sign that there's not enough variation within the genre to sustain itself with the box office long term. If you don't have a variety of product, you're not going to reach a variety of audience members. So this is not a Snyder, Justice League, Whedon podcast. <clears throat> this is a DS9 podcast, so we should probably move back to that. Okay. Today's episode is the seventh season, episode 15. Bada bing, bada bang. The mob puts the make on the crew's favorite hollow suite. You're finished in this town, Vic. Now, one bad roll of the dice. Believe it's a plan. And their history on the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was re- directed by Mike Viger, as opposed to Viger, the spaceship. Written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Bielmer. Featured music by Jay Jacoby, cinematography by Jonathan West, and the original air date was February 24th, 1999. The plot opens. Julian Bashir and Miles O'Brien 
Enjoy an even evening at Vic Fontaine when the program suddenly changes into a noisy cabaret. Frankie Eyes, Vic's longtime rival, shows up to throw Vic out. Bashir and O'Brien try to delete Frankie or freeze the program, but it doesn't work. After Frankie fires Vic, the crew learns that Frankie was written into the Holosuite program by Vic's designer, Felix. Upset by Frankie's treatment of Vic and by the knowledge that the lounge's atmosphere will now change, the crew decides it must get rid of the program of Frankie. But to accomplish this task, they realize he must be eliminated in a way that is period-specific to Fontaine's era, circa 1962. They cannot simply rewrite the program because that would result in Vic forgetting all the experiences that he has shared with the crew up to this point. The task takes on greater urgency when Vic is beaten up. Vic reveals that he was assaulted by Frankie's bodyguard, Tony Cheech. Eager to discover Frankie's weak spot, Odo and Kira go undercover in the casino to do some research. Frankie takes a liking to Kira, and while the two flirt, Odo learns that Frankie works for a crime boss, Carl Zemo, who expects to receive from Frankie a large skim of the hotel's huge daily profits. The crew hatches a plan to rob the casino, hoping it will cause Zemo to bump off Frankie in retaliation. The plot is set in motion when the crew infiltrates the casino staff, and Vic convinces Frankie to let him bring his high-rolling contacts into the casino, who unbeknownst to Frankie, a Starfleet officer. Meanwhile, Benjamin Sisko resents Cassidy Yates' participation in the plan, admitting he has not visited Vix because of how blacks were treated in Las Vegas in the 1960s. She urges him to reconsider, citing the comfort she and Jake have both felt in the lounge. And soon, Cisco agrees to play a pivotal role as a big money gambler. Vic walks the crew through their complex plan, be executed the following night before Zemo arrives. A security guard makes the phone call at the same time each night, which allows them only eight minutes to pull off the heist. Though all the crew members are well prepared for their roles, the actual evening presents several glitches in the plan. Most notably, when Nog discovers that the lock on the safe is, a different, is of a different type than expected, while he struggles to crack the lock, Zemo arrives a day early to pick up his cash. Noticing Zemo's premature entrance, Vic does his best to stall him, while the other crew members fabricate enough stories and distractions to allow a successful Nog and Odo to slip away with the cash. After Zemo discovers an empty safe, his thugs lead Frankie and Cheech out of the casino while reaching for their guns under their lapels, leaving Vic to cherish to his cherished role as lounge singer and the crew to theirs as satisfied patrons. The atmosphere of the lounge changes back to the way it was originally. Vic takes the stage with his own band back and calls up Captain Sisko, who joins him in a duet of The Best is Yet to Come. I get a kick out of this episode, but then again, I get a kick out of all Vic's episodes. Ain't that a kick in the head? It is indeed. <laughs> 
clearly, uh, yeah, it's, clearly it's remarkably is... it's remarkably fun. You know, I, I, it, it's amazing how topics come up so frequently. And the topic that's been coming up lately when I record is podcasting hypocrisy. Uh, we, we just spent three out of the last four episodes talking about how, you know, we the, the placement of the episode in the in the uh, order of the run is is bad because it's taking us out of this big battle that's coming up, you know, and and. You know, it's just a pocket episode to itself. And what do they do? They present a pocket episode that I love. Yeah, but 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 this I think is going to be the last lighthearted episode to the end. So this is like getting you ready. You know? Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with you, but I'm just saying. You know, we because we, these we, last we few episodes were not light or lighthearted. I mean, not not all of them. Yeah, but but I but you know I criticize them for taking us off the main story, and this one really has virtually nothing to do with the main story, and yet I, I was enthralled by it. I, I really enjoyed this episode. It's um, I, I, I just I was just gonna finish with the thought of I I get a kick out of the episodes uh, where the actors get to play not necessarily within the confines of their role, and again hypocrisy because. Three episodes ago, we complained about the alternate universe episode that it really didn't hit the mark as far as that went. Uh, but to see the characters playing the ocean, you know, Ocean's Eleven yeah. story and the whole heist and everything, uh, I really enjoyed it. And and I particularly enjoyed the uh, atypical soundtrack that went with this episode. That it brought us, you know, into the uh, the the mode of that type of movie uh, or or that type of story. And, and uh, you know, I, I just really, to, to me, it kind of hit on all cylinders, but I'm sure others can disagree. I don't know if you guys do. No, I loved it. I genuinely, I, I did genuinely love it. And you know what, I, the first time through, I really loved it. I thought it was an absolute blast. This time when I watched it for this case, I wasn't watching it in the context of all of season seven. I just dipped in and rewatched the two episodes that I was invited on for, and... It doesn't hit quite as as hard for me, and it's not quite as fun. And I think it's because I'm lacking that contrast. So it's entirely possible part of the reason it is so much fun in this place is because it's been such a serious season, and this sort of releases it. And it works better in this case than it would have with the Last Mirror episode because it wasn't light. So it was still a serious and dramatic episode in the middle of this long-going serious and dramatic story arc. So it it didn't provide the emotional contrast that this does. So I think that's part of the reason this works better than that mirror episode is because, you know, it it is saying, yeah, let's get lighthearted because this is our last chance to do it. And part of it may be because I remember how this goes. There is 11 broadcast hours left in the series and the last 10 are one giant story wrapping it up. So this is the second last standalone in the whole series. And it should have been the last. Yeah. Yeah, it really should have. But so, but they changed the order of transmission at the last minute. Bill, what do you think? Sorry, I was doing research. Um, this was ranked racing. This was ranked the 17th out of 20 holodeck episodes. And I was just looking at what beat it. Like all of Voyager's no. holodeck episodes beat it. Which no. I, I <laughs> well, that's I, so I was surprised by this. And his way was actually last at 20. Oh, a lot of people agree, agreeing with Ben on that one, then. Yeah, is this list from the Mary Universe? I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I I will have to say, 
I generally speaking, I am not a fan of Voyager. I actually gave up on it in the first season. I went back and rewatched it, but there is a, a rather fantastic holodeck episode in the middle, which is largely in black and white, going back to the old movie serials. That is number one, Bride of Chaotica. Yeah, and that one I think deserves the number one spot. So credit where credit is due. That. Voyager often failed, but that time they were firing on all cylinders. That's probably my pick for my favorite episode of the entirety of Voyager. So yeah, I will say that's higher than this, but I will say this should be more than 17th. Well, mm-hmm. let's let's start with Bill. What are, what are the episodes ranked lower than this one? Sorry, I was scrolling through the list. Uh, the ones ranked lower are well, this one really isn't. It's I wouldn't consider a holodeck. It's not, it not nothing human on Voyager, which is the one where uh, he replicate. Well, he brought up the Cardassian doctor who was like the Cardassian Doctor Mangala. Uh, that was number eighteen. Number nineteen is another one, Flesh and Blood Voyager, and uh, the last one is His Way. At twenty, with the ones lower. I, I thought yeah. this is better than like the Big Goodbye, or uh, I, I, I might put the Sherlock Holmes ones higher than this. Yeah, and I Sherlock think I put Holmes the James was... Bond one higher than this. Our Man Bashir is mm-hmm. number two. Yeah, and honestly, I would put the one where Quark was not his way, but the first time that there was uh, a version of Kira on the Hollow Suite that she did not approve of. That's got to be near the bottom because that's just all kinds of wrong. Mm-hmm. I would not put that above this. Take me out to the Hollow Suite was seven. See, I don't see it as a Hollow Suite episode, even though it's a well, playing I, I game think in it's, the Hollow Suite. Some of these are like just Hollow Suite, like even tangentially connected. Uh, only a Paper Moon is number eight, and then we get a Voyager. We got a Voyager. The Big Goodbye is eleven. Elementary Dear Data is twelve, which was like the first, the first Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. Ship in a Bottle, which was the second Sherlock Holmes, is number three. Do they have the animated series episode with the recreation deck going nuts, but when the holograms broke down, you could see that holodeck pattern on the walls? No, I don't see that. Fistful of Datas was 13. Ah, Booby Trap. much better than the Datas. Booby Trap, where Jordy falls in love with Leah Brahms, 14. And then two other Voyager ones before this one. And when I say things are better, uh, you know, I understand that other people might disagree. I'm not. I can't can't speak in absolutes. I'm not a Sith, but I, I believe that this these this one should be ranked higher. Yeah, yeah. It it is pretty fun. It's. I mean, you don't get a lot of heists in Star Trek, and the fact that they went found a way to make it work in Vegas, which is you know sort of the classic heist movie setting, because you're you know when the heist gets going. The people running the hotels are often gangsters who are going to be handling it internally. You don't have to worry about them calling in the police immediately and stuff like that. Although they will also deal with you in a very different way than the police would. If you get caught, you're not just going to get arrested. So I, I like that. I like the fact that, you know, unlike a lot of heist movies where things seem to be going off the rails and, oh, it was part of the plan to fail that way and it was so much depending on coincidence. No, here everything does go wrong and the crew has to deal with it on the fly. Uh, you know what? I was wondering, did it just go wrong, or was it built into the program for it to go wrong? Like, did I it kept give... thinking, was the program doing that? Yeah. <laughs> was it adjusting to make it more exciting for them? Yeah. You know what? what if, the it might have been doing adapting. That? Yeah, it's it is entirely possible because we know the whole scenario is programmed in just to keep it lively. So it might have said, 
you know, monitor their emotions. And if it yeah, looks like, like okay, they've got yeah. a functioning plan, throw like in a couple they, monkey wrenches, but make it work. Mm-hmm. It's like Skynet yeah. fights back. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the design of the holodeck, though, isn't it? It is designed to alter the program to make it more interesting for you. So the fact that they suddenly had to deal with this guy, oh, no, he took the night off. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> All that like, was really good. This is really nothing more than, like, today's games have DLC, downloadable content. So basically, this is an update to the game because, you know what, they're not coming back to this game as much. or So, ah, we need to, here, look, something new. Come back, come back. Now, one of the issues I had watching this episode was I thought that Cisco's position was, like, overstated. It was just, you know, it was Frank Gorshin's black on one side and white on the other. Uh, Until I read about it in uh, Memory Alpha... And then it made sense to me, and it was okay, because they they basically said that they didn't want people who were not, you know, familiar with that era to think everything was always just, you know, happiness and, and racial harmony, uh, and that black mm. people were in these casinos, and it was a normal thing. So they wanted to point it out somehow, and they had to come up with a script way to, uh, to let that be known, and... Is it a little heavy-handed for his character to be going off on that rant? Probably. But I think it serves a purpose. I don't think so on this one. Uh, I think this one... I I don't. I I agree with Dave. Yeah, I think given that the guy's been through Far Beyond the Stars and that whole experience, I think that would be uppermost in his mind. And actually, despite the fun and the froth and the enjoyability of everything else in this episode, and it is all of those things, that was my favourite scene in the episode. Okay. And like I said, I thought it was a little heavy-handed when I first saw it, but then I came to respect it when I read the reasoning behind it. So, yeah. I mean, I remember reading somewhere, not Star Trek-related, They when the Rat Pack used to perform, they didn't want Sammy staying in the hotel, and it was only because Frank made us think that he was going to stay with them. But that was not done back then. Yeah. No, and then they, they, would, uh, they would actually, you know, make some racially insensitive jokes on stage you know and and i guess it was kind of okay because sammy was there and he was laughing at it too but not i guess it wasn't okay <laughs> yeah he was laughing on the outside but yeah. well they did i mean i i know when they did a movie about the rat pack they showed you know he was uh, married at the time and his wife uh, who was was offended and i think that was probably very accurate and he might you know they didn't really have him at least uh, that I saw, they didn't have him read, but she was very bold. Yeah, which may be historically accurate, because that was not really a time where the minorities that are getting the mocking would be, they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable speaking out against it because of the ramifications of doing so. Yeah, well, in some in some respects, and I mean, we're going far afield, but in some respects, Sammy Davis Jr., despite being a part of a minority that was not really accepted in those circles, he was accepted. So, you know, he could have taken a, a huge social stand and said, "Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not going forward with this because, uh, you know, I, I want to represent all the people who aren't allowed in here." Uh, but I don't know if that would forward his cause in any way. It would just kind of exclude him as well. Whereas maybe by being a <coughs> part of it, he showed everybody, "Hey, you know what? We're people just like you are, and we should be allowed in here." You know, maybe, maybe in in retrospect, maybe he did advance the cause by by not bucking the system so much yeah it may not have been an easy choice for him to make but i'm sure it was i I can't imagine that it was easy because i'm sure he was getting pressure from both sides to do various things i want to go too far off on this field but certainly uh 
you know, the one thing we could say is uh, it's better now than it was then. I'm not going to try and argue it's perfect. It's better now than it, it gets to the point where we don't even. Boy, that's two episodes in a row that we get into social uh, inequities. Mm-hmm. So let's, I, I let's go is purely into yes. the superficial. Yeah, yes. Probably. Let's go purely into the superficial. God, none of us are to come work our hips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know who the costume designer was for that episode, but give that man an Emmy or woman. <laughs> I like how Bay George apparently located in Joyzy. Yeah, that's in Jersey. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, Also, let's uh, let's give a big hand to Nicole Dubois, who, in the fantasy scenes of the description of how this is all going down is perfect as the waitress she's gliding she's not bothered about the glasses or anything like that and then in the real sequences she's actively terrified and clinging onto that tray for dear life that was an excellent subtle piece of acting from her that i thought was really good i'm curious uh, i'm sorry sorry. go ahead blaine uh just so you know andy robert blackman did the costume design and he did win three emmys for costume design all for Next Generation, for Devil's Due Cost of Living in Time Zero. He wasn't nominated for this episode. He was nominated for uh, Next Gen's All Good Things, Voyager's Caretaker. He was nominated for costume design in The Muse for Deep Space Nine, and Far Beyond the Stars for DS9, and also nominated for Voyager's False Prophets, Muse there as well, uh, and Shattered, and another nomination for pushing daisies for buzz right. so so yeah he's got I, wonder three if, I wonder if they think that because this was quote unquote a period piece that it didn't require as much work as normal because both this and our man Bashir were excellent on the costume department certainly Cole Meany seemed to relish being out of his Starfleet uniform see I think I think period <laughs> pieces require more work than a uh than a traditional episode on a series like this. Because once you establish the uniform for the crew, you know, normal episodes don't have a lot of costume design to do at that point. It's okay, you know, you're wearing a Starfleet uniform. We've designed it already. Uh, But once you go into a period piece, now it's like, okay, we have to recreate the look of that era. And Mm. that's not so easy. And you also have to do it in a way where you're making your actors look, you know, I was going to say make him look as good as possible, but it's not always as good as possible. It's sometimes it's as good as possible, and sometimes it's just that they fit in that era, even if they're not looking as good as possible. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at designing costumes for alien races, you just have to keep them consistent. But the first time a Cardassian shows up, you can't sit there and say, oh, they've got that uniform wrong, because it's the first time. You're saying this is what is right and working with it, aside from the fact that they had those helmets that they lost pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, with a period piece, like Paul is saying, then you're going to have the layperson going, no, wait a minute. Yeah, they right? didn't have shoes like this back in 1963, you know, whatever it is. You know, they, they have to, although although you can get away with it because you could say, well, the computer made an error, uh, you know, when we recreated the look. <laughs> but just the same, you want it to be as, as well designed as possible. And I think, I think a, a, an episode like this uh, requires a lot more work for the costume department than... Other than, like you said, Blaine, the first time they appear. Also, this is a, another episode where a prominent Klingon actor shows up without his makeup, although he's instantly more recognizable. Yes, yes, Robert Bobby. O'Reilly. Bobby. Yeah. Bobby O'Reilly, yeah, shows it's, up it's, as actually, uh, the new O'Reilly. guy in the count room. In this one, it's just. Oh, does he not even have the O? Well, fair no, enough. No, apparently, the, the hologram doesn't have a father. 
Well, we've also learned that if your name is Little uh, is it Little, Little Paulie and you hear Big Paulie is going to be whacked by Cheech to get the hell out of town because he may screw that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's too many Paulies in this business. I, did, yeah. I didn't notice anything about the way they spoke that seemed out of the ordinary to me. <laughs> Just, well, I got a kick out of Mr. Zemo was also, wasn't he the gangster in uh, Diamonds Are Forever? Yep. Throws the girl out the window. She lands in the pool. I didn't know there was a nice. pool there. I didn't know there was a pool down there. <laughs> uh, the only other thing I got on this is uh, I noticed right before the job goes down, she is holding a full house of ace, uh, kings and eights. And I found it interesting because if he had aces, it would be a dead man's hand. <laughs> I found... And I found that the, there was a little undercurrent of commentary in it about being addicted to a, a television show, like, say, I don't know, Star Trek, whereas this, they're all addicted to Vix, which is a Holosuite program. And I loved Worf's reaction to it, like, what are you getting all bent out of shape about? It's not real. Yeah, I find, I find <laughs> I genuinely it seeming to be funny. enjoyable, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so Worf represented the non... Worf represented the non-fan... I thought. Well, Worf had had enough problems with with uh, that on the Enterprise, so he's probably like, "Yeah, no thanks, just turn it off." Yeah, I mean, no cling, no Klingons in tights this episode. No, and this to give Deep Space Nine credit, like their their Holosuite episodes are far less dependent on these sudden serious malfunctions than Next Gen was. So mm. that's another point in mm. his favor. We find out, yeah, all those weird stuff happening. It's not a glitch in the program. It's the program acting as intended. Yeah, it's actually been programmed that way by Licks to make it interesting. I mean, you think there'd have been a bit more warning. And at least um, we had a problem with one of the other episodes that we didn't cover the backs of it. At least this, you've got the line, well, if we can just reset the, everything that he's learned, which again comes to the question, are they just leaving that program running all the time? I think they said yeah. that they are. Yeah, they explicitly stated that they are, and that that's why they didn't get Quark involved, because he would have been quite happy to lose Vic, because he sees Vic as competition. Mm. Yeah. It's okay. part of the same conversation, uh, saying that, yeah, this is running, I guess, 26-7, or however many days there are in the week in Bajor. Mm. And there was just other little little touches that I liked. I liked Cisco going, yeah, this is great. You going to get back to work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because he's, cause he's right. Who's running the station while they're all doing this? Yeah. I think, uh, I, you know, I just found Cisco's involvement in the whole thing to be enjoyable. <clears throat> you know, when, when he finally gets in there and he just seems to, you know, once he got over the thought that this is the way it was back then and he didn't like it, uh, he, he seemed to really just soak in the atmosphere and, and take it all in. And then when he gets up and sings, uh, it, it, I don't know, you know, the callback I'm getting is... Uh, is Batman singing on uh, JLU? Mm-hmm. I feel blue. <laughs> but it's uh, what's the name? Uh, James Darren commented to the effect that you know Avery Brooks was so cool, and it was fun for him to get up and sing a duet with. And apparently, he's a an accomplished piano. Yeah, have you never seen that thing William Shatner did, where he mm-hmm. interviewed everybody yeah. who's played a captain on Star Trek. The interviews Avery Brooks sat at his piano, and Avery Brooks is just out there, man. Shatner cannot keep up with this guy where, where his thought processes keep taking him. He bounces all over the place. Slow. Oh. 
Yeah, that, that is one thing. I mean, yeah. you've discussed the, the documentary. I know you've all seen it, but one of the things that came crystal clear was how much of an actor Avery Brooks actually is because I am hard-pressed to think of anyone else I've ever seen where the person's actual personality is so far removed from the character that they play. <laughs> I, I don't think Cisco would have room in his life for Avery Brooks the way he is in real life. He wouldn't He wouldn't have a lot of patience for him. He would be yelling at himself, What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me he's not a man called Hawk. <laughs> nope. Oh, I can't believe we missed the news that what was that? Uh, William Shatner wants to go up in space. Has he, hasn't he had that planned for a while? No, he was like volunteering for the thing with Elon Musk or whatever. Asking for they, they were asking for oh, volunteers right. or, or 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 was it the Russians were looking for people? I don't know. There was some, there was something where I saw a news blurb that said you know William Shatner beam me up, and then I just thought when when Richard Branson and Shatner was like yeah. Of course, he wants to be in command. Hey, why not? Risk is our business, gentlemen. What do you mean there's no snacks? <laughs> I was told there'd be snacks. I have to wear my space girdle. So, so it was cocktail. cocktail dress. Oh, sorry. No. My wife's going to hate my... I hope my wife doesn't look up my uh, search history. Nicole hmm. Burr cocktail dress? Oops. <laughs> where, where was Jake Cisco while this was going on? Uh, he was the lookout. He was the getaway driver. Okay. <laughs> so he was just sat outside in the car. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Fair enough. When was the last time we saw Jake? Hmm. Let me scan back to the other episodes. Uh, was he in It's Only a Paper Moon? Yeah, he was in that. Yeah, because he gets in the argument with uh, Nog. Mm-hmm. Yes, that IMDb confirms that is his most recent. It's been credit only since then. Um, he, and he will show up. He's actually only got three more on-screen appearances. Mm. So, I, I believe he actually holds the record for having a- appeared in the credits without actually appearing on screen the most <laughs> often in all of Star Trek. Did he still get paid? There's a different pay. So, yeah, if, if you got a credit, you get a certain minimum pay. Hey, right. But if you show up on screen at all, then you get paid more. So, well, some money's better than no money. So. Yeah, and he would have been 21 when they were filming this. Or, no, this is the year he turned 21. He would have been 20, so he wouldn't be subject to the, the child filming rules like he would have been in the early part of the series. But I think he was still wrapping up his post secondary, so. so he might have had school restrictions that, that that kept him out of filming a little more than they intended. Do those res- those restrictions run past 18? I mean, legally, or is it just... It might have been just more accommodating the fact that he was a student, so they would not have been legally required to accommodate. But yeah, once you're over 18, then they are not legally obligated to have on-set schools for you and things like that, mm. which are interesting. I was actually hired to teach one for a production that was here in Edmonton, so which is how I met Patrick Swayze. But anyway, uh, it's really disappointing that that was his last movie. But oh. it, it's not a good movie. It's basically an ad for West Edmonton Mall. Uh, to put it in context, 
one of the child actors who was also part of X3 The Last Stand where they fired the first or Brian Singer left and they brought in a new director after like just a few weeks away from production. And he said that the Christmas in Wonderland was the biggest cluster F that he'd ever been on for a set. And I was like, you were in X3, weren't you? He's like, yep, okay. But actually, his response wasn't just, yep. It was, yep, we are now in week 10 of a six-week shoot. And they had just cast a part for someone who's in a third of the movie. So I saw Tim Curry running around filming his scenes. Tim Curry was in this movie, and he did every single scene he has in one take because he was there for, like, three days. But anyway, back to talking about good things like this episode. <laughs> so, so what did, what did you email us about this episode, Blaine? Uh, my email says, hi, guys. Uh, a heist movie in the middle of Star Trek. This is really the last chance for a fun romp, and it works well enough. Also, it's a holodeck slash holosuite episode where the hardware and software is working exactly the way it's supposed to. Holodeck safety protocols remain intact for the real characters, but a holographic character the crew cares about is in danger, so the stakes are real. Whether we like how much time we spend with Vic or not, we can buy why the command crew wants to help. Furthermore, Cisco's objection to the program brings real issues to light. This fun episode still hits on some social issues and in a way that makes sense for the characters. Also, who can gripe about the outfits on Kira and Esri? Oh, and if anyone is thinking that Avery Brooks was dubbed while singing because the lip sync is a little off, you're sort of right. Avery Brooks and James Darren both do their own singing. However, is it a tradition for musical routines to record the songs in advance in a more controlled studio setting and then play those recordings on set during filming? The actors who sang their own stuff in advance would lip sync to the playback. Full-scale musicals can also pay for equipment and software that adjust the playback speed of the songs for better lip-sync, but here it's all about the actors. Brooks didn't have a lot of experience with this, so you can see more out-of-sync moments with him than with Darren. He did I would in his place, though, for lip-sync and singing quality. So yes, he sang, and he sang well. So that's the original email. All right, now it's time to rate it. Excellent. Excellent. Ready? Are you pyramiding your fingers as you say that? Well... As far as rating, clearly this rates five million bucks for me. All right, so you're sticking. Five million so you're bucks. giving it five. I'm giving it a five. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little waffling now because watching it in the context of the season as it's intended, it would have been a five. It's a lot of fun. Now I'm thinking more like four and a half because it, it's not as much fun when it's not that pressure. So I'm. I'm a little unsure of where I'm going to sit it. You know, maybe I'll give it a four and a half just because I know what's coming. So if you're looking at a bell curve over this series, it's not the perfect fives that we've had in the past and we'll have again. So I'll give it a very strong four and a half. I give it a four and a half as well, and I feel like you might be underestimating what a four four and a half is. Four and a half is saying that it's a terrific episode. Uh, I, I give it a four and a half not because I'm trying to put it down in any way. I put it. I give it a four and a half because I just thought it was really, really enjoyable from start to to finish. Um, I'm gonna give it. Uh, well, I know I really can't give it four and a half card stud because that doesn't make any sense but when do i ever make any sense so four and a half card stud in poker uh but you know so everybody's concerned about vic right everybody loves vic and you know we can't change anything yeah, to him everybody loves vic. everybody loves vic <laughs> but nobody gives a crap about the other holograms that the other ho- hologram uh you know is going to get whacked you know, I mean, this isn't Felix's program. Don't aren't they as just as alive as Vic? Or they're maybe, not self-aware, so that's why uh, they're not. That's true. Uh, oh, that's true. That's true. You, I, yeah, 
Yeah, just imagine every hologram that's not Vic is wearing a red shirt. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> so, yep, four and a half card stud for the episode. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go four as well. I think I think it's really fun. It's a really good episode, uh, really enjoyable, and it is yeah the release that you need before we go into the finale, which is a shame that they mucked around with the order of it, the transmission order. But you know, it is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, but they couldn't have had this at the end. No, no, this uh, was supposed to be next. Oh. Into Armin Even Silent Lieges was supposed to earn now, and oh. then bada bing, bada bang, and then the nine, the ten part finale. I got you. I missed that earlier. I thought you were saying earlier that this should have been at the end of the show, but I'm like, no, that wouldn't have worked. No, they swapped the transmission order with this because they were so impressed with the production value and wanted it to hurry in, I don't know, February sweeps or whatever the hell that is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, this would have been, so they had it end during the sweeps week. So, the, but yeah, this would have been the last standalone. So. Okay, and so that does it for this episode, and we have a little viewer mail we can read. So I'll do the first one. It is from Gus Shaw. I don't think we've heard from Gus before, and thank you for writing into us. And his email is titled, Thank You, Not Spam. So we each thank each other. Salutations, Prophet Casters. Deep Space Nine is my favorite iteration of Star Trek possibly because it was the only one I was able to watch during its original run. In the rural location where I grew up, we could only pick up four stations on the antenna, and one of them carried the weekly broadcast of Deep Space Nine. Unfortunately, I never finished the last season. We missed several episodes due to power outages and during a heavy blizzard. The weatherman ended up preempting the entire time slot to tell everyone how bad the storm was. Then, about halfway through the season, the network built a new tower and shut down the old one, and we couldn't get the signal to come in again. I recently started rewatching the series on Netflix from the beginning. I had heard pro- promos for this podcast on some of the comic book-related shows I listened to. Honestly, I didn't get the point to listening to other people talk about an episode of a show I had already watched. If the plot is so complicated that I needed someone else to explain it to me, I probably wouldn't be that interested anyway. But listening to your coverage of the pilot episode after I had watched it myself, I really liked it, and I'm continuing to follow along with your podcast as well. I am legally blind and can no longer see the TV or computer screen. Between the dialogue, sound effects, background music, and my memory of watching these shows as a child, I can follow along without feeling like I missed anything. So far, Netflix doesn't provide audio descriptions for the Star Trek series. I especially appreciate your commentary on the special effects and costuming. It does enhance the mental picture I create of the episodes. Thank you very much. Currently, I am still working my way through Season 2. I won't bother you with feedback on specific episodes that were so far in your past that you don't remember watching them or wish you didn't remember them in certain cases. I would like to follow up on a general point made early in your podcast and also in Gene's review of this show. Mainly, the analogy that DS9 is like the rifleman in space. I like this analogy, although, since I didn't experience most of the classic westerns until I was in college, for me, it is more like the rifleman is DS9 on horseback. But taking the basic idea of thematically linking space operas and classic westerns, what are some other motifs you would like to see explored in the Star Trek universe? Personally, I would be interested in Star Trek's version of Rawhide. Possibly a motley freighter crew running out, running cargo at or across the boundaries of Federation space, dreaming of the big hall, evading marauders and pirates, and finding every way possible to aggravate their 
edition of Gilf Favor. Since a merchant vessel wouldn't be bound by the same rules as a Starfleet flagship, the show could explore other angles than we are able to get from the Starfleet-centric show. Plus, there would be a great potential for more Ferengi interaction. Also, how come no one has made Alias Smith & Jones in space? I would watch it. Cheers, Gus. Yeah, I think Andy and I would both watch that one, too. We'd be, we'd be all over that. Uh I think you know your description of uh, rawhide in space might be. Uh, you might want to check Firefly on that one. <laughs> but, uh, I just want to see Wagon Train to the Stars. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the email, Gus. I, I appreciate your perspective. I'm glad you're enjoying our commentary, uh, especially since you were resistant to it at first. So that that makes me feel good. Uh, you know, it's a, a real compliment to us, and uh, I, I definitely appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Yes, I enjoyed that. Do you want me to do the next one? Sure, it's in your contract. <laughs> I think you'll find it's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm your com- contract is a document contained only in my mind. It says whatever <laughs> I say it says. <laughs> yeah, but that means I don't have to agree to it because it's only in your head. Uh, you already signed off. I have it. <laughs> Matthew Gilliland is our other emailer. First time watcher, so I'll tap hosts. Wow, we're, we're hosts now. Excellent. We're trills. Is that why I'm I so fast? That <laughs> I got like six trills. I, I have been a sci-fi fan for as long as I can remember, but I don't have solid memories of this show. I know I've seen over 20 episodes, but I can't remember where or when over the years. What I do remember are the characters and how they have that family might fight but stick together when it counts mentality. I was going through Netflix and DS9 once again caught my eye, so I decided to start from the beginning and watch the first episode. And I don't know why I never have before. I had heard that it's a reflection of a Western town and knowing that's made the show much more enjoyable than I remembered. Many of them have direct roles. Odo is the sheriff. Quark owns the bar with gambling and dancing ladies. Cisco is the army officer given the rundown fort, dances with wolves. Keiko runs a one-room school, little house on the prairie. Bajorans are the native peoples. The wormhole is the last jump-off point to the west. My fear is that Jay will... I stopped watching The Next Generation because the teenage Wesley was so damn Murray Sue that he did officers out of Starfleet. It kept happening over and over. Oddly, I love Will Wheaton and get excited when I see him in something. I searched my podcaster and found you had over one. 140 episodes. Gee, I can't believe we've done that better. Thank you for sticking with it through all these years. I can't wait to finish this journey with y'all. Thank you, Matthew Gilliland. Well, thank you, Matthew. I'm glad you you decided to check us out. It'd be a while before you hear this, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows how much he's binging. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Two, two very complimentary emails, and I appreciate that. So, I guess that's it for this time out. Andy, next time? Next time on an all-new episode of Listen to the Prophet. In the present of arms, the laws grow silent. Inter arma enim, silent lieges. In the shadows of war. Your mission is to gather data about the Romulan leadership. Allies become enemies. I can't trust anybody. And espionage turns to murder. These are not nice people we're dealing with. But for Dr. Bashir, going undercover. Remember, this isn't a game. Is a matter of life. We have to warn them. And death. This can be painful or not. That's up to you, Doctor. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Possibly the most pretentious title a Star Trek episode has ever had. 
Oh no no! Discovery exists now, doesn't it? I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, just just going back to old stuff is for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. The most pretentious one. No, because that's that's important to the episode. She actually explains that the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. Do you need to explain it in the episode in the title? I always just felt that I always felt that title was overlong and and did unnecessary. But that's just me. It's not. It's not as bad as to the lamb's death when we cut the wolf's throat or whatever that episode of Discovery is. <laughs> yes. All right. I stand corrected. All right. So uh, once again, Blaine, thanks for coming on. Uh, no, thanks for having me. Once again, you want to tell our listeners where else they could find you? Uh, yeah, I've got a number of podcasts. You can hear the complete breakdown at the end of our previous episode of Listen to the Prophets, but they're all hosted at Bureau42.com. And uh, thank you again for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Listen to the Prophets at Deep Space Nine Podcast is a Two True Freaks presentation. It is hosted by Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright CBS and Paramount Entertainment. If you like to buy stuff from Amazon, and who doesn't, why not drop by the 2TrueFreaks.com website, where if you click the little link that we have there, it will take you straight through that site, and whilst it won't cost you any extra, we'll put a few shekels in our tip jar, which helps create content like this. We very much hope you enjoyed listening to The Prophets. Every episode is dedicated to the memory of our pal, Sean Engel. In a lot of the emails, I have said I have issues with the Mirror Universe because there's just so much involved. You know, I can accept Mirror Universe characters if the difference between the universe is within that generation. But I struggle with accepting the idea that, yeah, we've there were the comparable Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Sulu and the comparable DS9 crew all at the same time. Right. I would think a universe that's starting to diverge like that, that many generations down the road, there wouldn't be the same people. And that is something I have struggled with with the Mary Universe episodes. But now that we're this far into season seven, I think I can come up with headcanon that resolves that issue. Because we have seen what the lengths the Prophets were willing to go to to make sure Ben Sisko existed. So what if the Prophets are doing that? The whole universe is not that similar. But the all the elements that lead to the creation of Ben Sisko and the person he is are there. So the original Enterprise crew that he visits in Season 9 needs to exist in both universes. Right? Everyone on Deep Space Nine needs to be there to help him become the person he is. You know, Even in retrospect, the, the Enterprise and Discovery episodes that go there, because they're fundamental to the formation of the Federation, maybe the mirror universes that we're seeing just appear this similar but only in that era, because that's the part that leads to the Federation that they need Cisco to be a part of and to the creation of Cisco. So maybe the prophets have been manipulating far more than anyone realized in both universes. And that's why we have so much similarity. It's just a thought. It, it gives at least the ability to kind of just turn a blind eye to that element of continuity uh, by having at least an, a, a plausible explanation for it. And, Quite frankly, it's something that I've struggled with as well. And in the most recent uh, episode uh, that we had with the Mirror Universe, I brought it up again, how, you know, it's just implausible that these characters would come into
into existence. And I think I, I went off a Very, on, on Esri Dax. You know that, that we we've gone that far now. That even you know, uh, Jadzia's uh, fate was was similar. Uh, oh no 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 no! Vic Fontaine in the other variant. Right. That, that, that that was the that was the bridge too far for you guys. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and 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 I don't disagree with that, but uh, you know, I, I I think at least Blaine Blaine is giving me a reason to accept why Esri Dax would exist. 